get that kind of coverage. I would never get that kind of coverage, not in England anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this conference on faith and the challenges of secularism. I'm Robert George, director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions here at Princeton, and it's uh, my uh, privilege and honor to welcome you here today. Uh, we're discussing a topic that could not be more timely or important, and we have uh, had the good fortune to be able to assemble uh, for you an extraordinarily distinguished uh, group of scholars, an international group of scholars, uh, people of uh, the greatest uh, eminence and most profound thought uh, on the questions, the complex questions that will uh, be before us this weekend. Let me just say a word of uh, gratitude to our co-sponsors of this event, the University Center for Human Values here at Princeton, the Center for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Providence Forum. Representatives of uh, our co-sponsors uh, will be participating in the conference in uh, various roles, and uh, perhaps they'll take a moment at that time to say a word about uh, their distinguished organizations. I now have the pleasure of introducing the chairman of our uh, first panel, uh, to introduce the panel and moderate the discussion afterward. Uh, let me say that because we're getting a little bit of a late start, we're going to go over a little bit at the end uh, into the lunch hour uh, a bit. I'm sorry to, to, to do that, but uh, I think it's probably best at this point because we want a full discussion, and indeed we want time for discussion uh, and interventions from the uh, floor after our distinguished commentators uh, and paper giver have an opportunity to make uh, their remarks. So without further ado, let me introduce my esteemed colleague, Professor Maurizio Veroli, who is Professor of Politics uh, here at Princeton. Professor Veroli is one of a handful of true superstar teachers at the university, drawing enormous numbers of students to uh, his wonderful lectures. Uh, he is also a scholar of uh, eminence, having uh, written to great acclaim on such uh, figures as uh, Machiavelli uh, and Rousseau. Uh, he's, he's working his way up toward better figures than that. Uh, <laughs> or maybe working his way back toward Aquinas and Augustine. Uh, but uh, Professor Veroli has also written with distinction on republicanism uh, and, importantly for purposes of this conference, uh, on the concept of uh, civil religion. Uh, I'm also uh, honored to say that Professor Veroli is a charter member of the executive committee of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. Professor Veroli. Thank you. It is a great honor for me to have been invited to moderate this first session of this conference on faith and the challenges of secularism, organized by the James Madison Program on American Ideals and Institutions. It's a special honor for me, I must admit it, because I am not an American citizen. I am an Italian citizen, and here I am moderating a conference of the Madison Program on American Ideals and Institutions. It's a special feeling, perhaps too complex to explain. I'm grateful uh, to Professor Robert George for having invited me to moderate this session. Professor Robert, Robert George is not only a colleague of mine, and a friend. He is my neighbor in the Department of, of Politics, which means that only a thin wall separates <laughs> our 
offices. Yet, our political and moral views are very distant. <laughs> Professor Robert George teaches students the high road to morality and salvation. I teach them Machiavelli. <laughs> A man, Niccolò Machiavelli, who said upon his deathbed that he wanted to go to hell rather than paradise. Yet, Niccolò Machiavelli, my hero, the archenemy of the Roman Church, wrote that Christian religion, if we interpret it according to its true principles, quote, permits us the exaltation and defense of our country and wishes us to honor and to love it and to prepare ourselves to be such that we can defend it. He also wrote that where the fear of God fails, it must be either that the Republic comes to ruin or that it needs to be sustained by the fear of a prince, which supplies the absence of religion. Alexis de Tocqueville, in Democracy in America, has captured the sense of Machiavelli's insight better than anyone else, <coughs> to my knowledge. When Tocqueville writes, quote, I doubt whether men can support complete religious independence and entire political liberty at the same time. If he has no faith, he must obey a prince. And if he is free, he must believe. I am a secular person with impeccable credentials. <laughs> Yet these words have always deeply impressed me. They indicate, it seems to me, that if we want to be able to live in a free republic, there has to be some kind of faith. Otherwise, we have to accept a kind of political life in which we simply obey orders. The issue, of course, opens the question, which faith? Which faith, faith is apt to sustain the ethos of a democratic republic? We enter here in the fascinating question, terrain of democratic faith, a theme on which another colleague of mine, Professor Patrick Denin, has written splendid pages. Nothing but God will expel God, Emerson wrote in 1841. Shall we conclude from these words that a completely secular society a society with no sense of the divine, no faith, would not be the achievement of perfect liberty, but the perfection of despotism. I'm sure the speakers will address this theme. <clears throat> the words of Emerson also mean that secularist ideologies cannot hope to win against faith. The challenge of secularism against faith has been very strong in the past. 
But now it seems to me that secularist ideologies are everywhere in retreat. I have to admit this. Are there significant secular political movements in the world? Are there movements or parties that proclaim as their fundamental goal to emancipate men and women from religious faith? I fail to see them. On the contrary, it seems to me that in our days, religious faith is displaying an enormous strength. Who is practicing solidarity? Practicing, not preaching. Who is helping the poor, the needy, the victims of discrimination and xenophobia? Who is capable of taking care of our senior citizens, former prisoners, abandoned children and women? To my knowledge, the only people who are capable of practicing compassion are people more or less always with religious faith. People who, and this is perplexing to me, do not do what they do out of fear of God, but out of love of Christ. Sister Annalena Tonelli was born in my hometown in Italy, in Forlì. She was not a noun. She was a lay person. Out of love of Christ, she went to, Som to Somalia. She served there for 20 years. She built a hospital to cure children. As you probably have read, she was killed a few days ago. Now the question is, for me, how many secular persons were there to help her in her hospital? As we speak, European governments are about to pass the European Constitution. Political leaders and scholars have debated, and are debating, <coughs> with great passion, whether the Constitution sh should have a preliminary article containing a reference to God or to the relevance of Christianity in the formation of the historical and cultural identity of Europe. I think that at the end, they will confirm the idea that no reference to God or to Christianity should be in the preliminary article of the Constitution and in the Constitution. This can be interpreted as a challenge of secularism against faith. But if I were a Christian believer, I would be instead happy not to see the name of God in the European Constitution. God does not need to have his name in human constitutions, not even in the constitutions of Europe. Christ never asked to be mentioned in the statutes of the Roman Empire. And Christian faith has flourished, to my knowledge, best when it has carefully kept itself distant from political institutions. And when Christian faithfuls have been preaching their faith with words and with the examples of their life, Tocqueville's democracy in America has something to teach us in this regard, too. But I realize I've taken too much of your time in this.
it is time to introduce the speakers. Thank you. Roger Scruton is our keynote speaker. He is a professor, a writer, and a philosopher living in England. He is the author of more than 20 books, including The West and the Rest, 2002, An Intelligent Person's Guide to Modern Culture, 1999, The Aesthetic of, of Music, and The Dictionary of Political Thought. He has been professor of philosophy at Birbeck College, London, Boston University, Massachusetts. He is the founder of the conservative philosophy group, which influenced the climate of political opinion in Britain during the 70s and the 80s. He is also founder and director of Claridge Press. Please join me in welcoming Professor Scruton. Well, it's a, a great privilege to be here in what, in fact, is the nearest I have in America to an alma mater. I was here a quarter of a century ago um, as a fellow of the Council of Humanities and have uh, never forgotten it and also discovered yesterday to my distress that I've never been forgotten. Um, <laughs> but uh, those past errors I've lived down in the subsequent 25 years, and here I am back again. Uh, to talk about the topic which, as uh, my colleague has just said, is one of the most important confronting us today. Un unlike uh, Maurizio Viroli, I'm uh, not a, an entirely secular person. I belong to that wonderful institution that we know as the Anglican Church and you as the Episcopalian Church, uh, which is characterized by its ability to believe everything and nothing simultaneously. <laughs> Uh, while well, nevertheless maintaining an atmosphere of, uh, of holy devotion in all the crucial ceremonies of state. And um, this achievement, is, of course, is part of what made England endure through the catastrophes of the 20th century in a way that um, the rest of Europe did not. And um, just to complete what Maurizio has said about um, the European Constitution, we in England are fortunate, first of all, in not having a constitution, and secondly, in nevertheless having our own queen as the head of it and also the head of our church. Um, this creates such a profound confusion in everybody's thinking that the great questions can never be asked. <laughs> and that is good because if they are asked, they always get the wrong answer. Well, I'm going to talk about the sacred and the secular, and my purpose is twofold. First of all, to question the Enlightenment view of religion and to explore, secondly, some of the consequences of the secularization that the Enlightenment has stimulated and encouraged. <coughs> I'm not an advocate of Enlightenment. On the contrary, I see it as a form of light pollution which prevents us from seeing the stars. But I shall assume, nevertheless, that the Enlightenment has made its case and that we have to approach these questions from the point of view of an impartial and secular uh, view of the human condition. 
The Enlightenment saw religion as founded in the belief in transcendental or supernatural beings who are more powerful than we are and who hold our destiny in their hands. In time, according to the Enlightenment, people came to see the untenability of theological pluralism and settled down to believing in one God, whose wisdom, power and goodness set him so far above and beyond the world that he could be reached only by the via negativa of worship and prayer. Religion, as we know it, according to the Enlightenment, consists in that single belief, the belief in God, the doctrines that embellish it, and the practices that stem from it, notably the moral trepidation that comes from the fear of God and the habit of turning up at his Sunday morning surgery. That view of religion is doubtful for several reasons. For one thing, faith never has been and never will be the conclusion of an intellectual argument. Kant who was acutely aware of the point, since he retained his faith after mounting the most withering refutation of its theological superstructure, argued that he attached the claims of reason in order to make room for those of faith. It would be more honest to say that the claims of faith feature in Kant's writings, as in the writings of all sincerely religious people, as premises, but never as conclusions. Rational inquiry may tell us what those premises mean, but it is only because they are lodged immovably in our worldview that the inquiry has a point for us. So I, I think once we see this, we should, are inevitably going to be tempted by Nietzsche's project of giving what he called a genealogy of religious belief. Whence does this belief arise uh, if it is not the result of intellectual speculation? How and in response to what thoughts or experiences does it change? And the simple and straightforward answer seems to me to be the right one that religious belief is inherited from a community, typically the community into which you are born, and changes in response to changes in that community. It is also, of course, embellished by doctrine and developed by rational inquiry, but the results of the inquiry become accepted into the religion only when the community has reshaped itself so as to protect them from <coughs> doubt. Uh, you can grasp this point most easily, I think, by observing the Islamic sects in the Levant, in particular the Shiite, Druze, Ismaili, and Alawite offshoots of the Orthodox faith, whose doctrines are denounced by their neighbors as heresies precisely because they shape and are shaped by rival communities, conflicting loyalties, and competing territorial claims. Intellectually speaking, what does it matter whether Ali was or was not the true successor of the Prophet? Emotionally speaking, it matters more than anything else when this belief distinguishes my community, my loyalties, and my territory from yours. To put the point in another way, religion has its roots in the species' need to stand together, to claim and defend our territory, and to make the kinds of sacrifice that are needed for our collective survival. But we are rational animals who furnish our biological needs with a justifying commentary. From the root of collective membership, therefore, grows the trunk <coughs> of a common obedience and a collective inheritance of trust. And that trunk supports a branching superstructure of thought and emotion which fills the heart and the mind of believers and changes their world. Religion embraces all those things, membership, obedience, faith, liturgy, and worship. And to understand what it brings to us, we must not examine only belief and doctrine, but also the way in which life with religion differs at every level from life without it. That is something I think we should have learned from Durkheim's great classic, on the elementary forms of the religious life. But it needs to be repeatedly reaffirmed, not least because the Enlightenment view still persists that religion consists merely in a set of beliefs, long ago disproved by science, 
but clung to nevertheless for the comfort that they afford. Durkheim was not the first thinker to see religion as explained and understood in terms of our social needs and emotions. Comparative anthropology also grew out of the Enlightenment. It was a rational attempt to understand human difference and to see both ancient customs and the newly discovered customs of Africa and America as manifestations of a universal human nature. Hence, side by side with the Enlightenment view of religion as belief in the transcendental, grew the study of religions as forms of social life and the gradual recognition that belief in the transcendental is only one aspect of religion and perhaps not the most significant aspect. The thought gradually took place, took shape among philologians and philosophers that the stories of the gods were not to be understood as attempts at literal truth, but as complex allegories <coughs> of the human condition, whose real meaning was to be found in the workings of our deepest social emotions. This thought culminated in um, the ring of the Nibelung of uh, Richard Wagner, in which religious ideas are returned, as it were, to their human origins and in which the gods become dependent on the human dramas that they instigate and through which they seek a purely human redemption. Crucial to this Wagnerian view of religion is the idea that even when speaking directly of God or the gods, the religious consciousness is, as it were, translating from the literal to the metaphorical. Religion seems to be about the gods. In fact, it is about us and our human destiny. But we can understand what it is saying only through analogy and allegory. The allegory transports us to another realm where the dark secrets of the human soul can be spread out for our contemplation and made comprehensible in the guise of cosmic forces. That, for Wagner, is the essence of myth, and it is why myths are the core of ancient religion. For Wagner, as for the Greeks, a myth was not a decorative fairy tale, but the elaboration of a secret, a way of both hiding and revealing mysteries that can be understood only in religious terms through the ideas of sanctity, holiness, and redemption. These are ideas that we all of us need, Wagner believed, and although the common people perceive them through the veil of religious <coughs> doctrine, they come alive in the great examples of love and renunciation, especially as presented in art. Wagner put the point in the following way. He said, It is reserved to art to salvage the kernel of religion, inasmuch as the mythical images which religion would wish to be believed as true are apprehended in art for their symbolic value, and through ideal representation of those symbols, art reveals the concealed deep truth within them. Wagner took the view that religious doctrine had lost its power to convey the deep, concealed deep truth of our condition. Scientific skepticism and the social disorders of modernity threatened to bereave people of their religious beliefs, but people would still stand in need of their religious feelings, since these are essential to their nature. Hence, we need another route to those feelings, another way of being joined to the truth of our condition so as to find the redemption that is promised by religion and which we all need. This is the task that Wagner set himself in his art, to offer redemption without doctrine and religious emotion without religious belief. It is the reason why he is hated as an artist and also, of course, worshipped. Nietzsche, profoundly influenced by Wagner, uh, but with an acerbic anti-Christianity which, in my view, undermined his posture as an impartial anthropologist, also placed the kernel of religion elsewhere than in doctrine. For Nietzsche, the fundamental phenomenon is the cult, 
something that Christianity shares with ancient religions. Through the cult, people adopt the attributes of the God and mysteriously identify with the God in his triumphs and ordeals. The doctrines associated with the cult are adopted because they are part of the fortifying collective experience, not because they are true. But they are believed to be true because they are fortifying, though true in a special way. <coughs> Nothing can refute the doctrines since they are neither arrived at nor relinquished through rational argument. They are holy mysteries, the proof of which, proof of which lies in the cult itself. I just want to consider a third uh, approach to these matters, which is more modern, that of René Girard in his um, celebrated book, Violence and the Sacred. Girard argues that the core of religion is not belief in the transcendental, but the experience of sacred awe, an experience that is fundamental, he believes, to human community. The sacred can be presented to us in many forms, in religious ritual, in prayer, in tragedy, but its true origin is in an act of communal violence. Primitive societies, according to Girard, are invaded by what he calls mimetic desire, as rivals struggle to match each other's social and material acquisitions, so heightening antagonism and precipitating a cycle of revenge. The solution is to identify a victim, one marked by fate as outside the community and therefore not entitled to vengeance against it, who can be the target of the accumulated bloodlust and who can bring the chain of retribution to an end. Scapegoating is society's way of recreating difference and so restoring itself. By uniting against the scapegoat, people are released from their rivalries and reconciled. Through his death, the scapegoat purges society of its accumulated violence. His resulting sanctity is the long-term echo of the awe, relief, and reattachment to the community that was experienced at his death. Now, that's a very striking uh, sort of anthropological reconstruction of the feelings behind our response to Christ's passion. The need for sacrificial scapegoating, according to Girard, is therefore deeply implanted in the human psyche, arising from the very attempt to form a durable community in which the moral life can be successfully pursued. One purpose of the theatre is to provide fictional substitutes for the original crime and so obtain the benefit of moral renewal without the horrific cost. Hence, according to Girard, we should see a tragedy like Sophocles's uh, Oedipus Tyrannus as a retelling of what was originally a ritual sacrifice in which the victim is chosen so as to focus and confine the need for violence. The victim is thus both sacrificed and sacred, the source of the city's plagues and their cure. In time, according to this view, human sacrifice comes to be replaced by the ritual sacrifice of animals, a process succinctly dramatized, as you, many of you will remember, in the Old Testament story of Abraham and Isaac, where God saves the human sacrificial victim at the last minute by presenting an animal substitute. And the omnipresence of animal offerings in Mediterranean religion, from the offerings made by Cain and Abel to those made by every Muslim at the Feast of Eid, is taken by Girard as a deep confirmation of his insight into the connection between ceremonial death and the experience of the sacred. Now, I don't doubt that there is something drastic about that theory, and that it owes much of its appeal to its own kind of intellectual violence. But I'm also drawn to it, as I'm drawn to the other two, the Wagnerian and the Nietzschean, 
not as full explanations of the nature of the religious experience, but as imaginative explorations of the dark origins of religion in the first human communities. These theories seem to summarize in a striking way facts with which we are familiar and which are otherwise wholly strange to us. All three thinkers were fascinated by the supreme sacrifice of Christ, who offered to prove his divine origin and mission by voluntarily surrendering himself for the sacrifice that society required. And all three look behind the naive enlightenment view of religion as a species of intellectual delusion to present the striking counter-assertion that religion is a species of emotional truth, but a truth that is not aware of itself and could not become aware of itself without ceasing to be. The Wagnerian, Nietzschean and Girardian approaches to religion are not incompatible, nor can any of them claim to be the whole truth about a phenomenon which has been the greatest motor in human history. Observing the Shiite remembrance of Kabbalah, in which the death of Hussein is reenacted in a collective act of self-flagellation, you might well be tempted to say, so this is what religion is, and then you will side with Nietzsche and Girard. Observing a Quaker meeting of friends or reading a sermon by John Donne, you might be tempted to say the same. And in that case, you will see religion as the Enlightenment saw it, as a belief in and posture towards the transcendental. The simplest response to those observations, therefore, is to say that religion is both those things, a ritual reaffirmation of membership and a stance towards the transcendental. After all, we are rational beings. We do not experience our social membership as horses experience their membership of the herd, we think about it, explain it, try to understand and justify. Faced with inherited rituals, we ask ourselves whence they came and to what they lead. Death is a monstrous fact for us, as it is not for the other animals. Time and eternity are present in all our thoughts. And the simplest explanation of our sacrificial rituals is that we do them because they are commanded and that the power that commands them will also reward our obedience. Even if Shirar is right in thinking that the sense of the sacred has its origins in the mimetic violence of the tribe, the rational soul moves inevitably towards the belief in transcendental beings. This belief, which <coughs> begins in wonder and ends in faith, conscripts the sacred to its purpose as proof of a world beyond. It is not just because we are social beings with emotions rooted in a past of solemn sacrifice and ritual cults that we distinguish sacred from profane and sanctity from desecration. We instinctively connect the sacred with the transcendental, seeing holy places, times, and rituals as windows onto another realm, places in the empirical world where we look out in astonishment at something that we can understand through ritual and prayer, which we try to explain through theological doctrine but which will always, in the end, elude our attempts to describe it. However we look at it, the legacy of comparative anthropology forbids us from taking the simple enlightenment view of religion as a form of intellectual error. Religion is a stance towards the world rooted in social membership and influencing every aspect of experience, emotion, and thought. In trying to understand our own situation in a world where religion is under assault from a relentless tide of secularization, we should move away from questions of doctrine and address instead the whole state of mind of religious people as blasphemy and sacrilege invade their sacred spaces and as they strive nevertheless to retain their innocence, their obedience and their faith. Religious people see the world in a way that enlightened people may not see it. Not only do they possess faith, 
Uh, their world is parceled out by concepts of the holy, the forbidden, the sacred, the profane, and the sacramental. These concepts may be absent from the intellectual life of even uh, of faithless people, but if the counter-enlightenment view of religion has any truth in it, they are rooted in feelings that even faithless people have. Hence, secularization does not impact only on the thoughts and feelings of the religious. It impacts on the thoughts and feelings of everyone, causing radical changes in the experience of social membership and in the structure of what Husserl called the Lebenswelt, the world as we live it and see it. To see that this is so, we should distinguish two waves of secularization. The first, characterized by 19th century Europe, involves a wavering of religious faith <coughs> and a retreat of religious ideas, beliefs, and symbols from the public sphere. As people lost the metaphysical beliefs to which their habits of worship had been pinned, they tried to shore up their social world in other ways, through secular law and institution building. The sacrament of marriage was recast as a civil agreement. Old customs of courtship and childbearing were justified in new ways by reference to the needs of society and patriotic duty. The churches withdrew or were expelled from the political process and from the institutions of civil society, and these in turn were provided with secular dignities to shore up their old authority. The outward form of society remained more or less unaltered, however, as faith withdrew, and people experienced their social membership not as a form of submission to God, but as a kind of individual commitment made sacred by purely human loves. This is what Matthew Arnold conveys in his famous lines from Dover Beach. The sea of faith was once too at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Having expressed thus the retreat of faith from the public sphere, Arnold begins the next stanza with a passionate invocation of the private sphere. Ah, love, let us be true to one another. In other words, let us replace God's love with our human love so that the world remains meaningful to us in something like the way it was meaningful before when God was in his heaven and the nymphs and dryads in their groves. Arnold typifies the Victorian attempt to patch up the social world after the retreat of faith using purely human resources. Individuals can lose their faith within the context of a religious community and still inhabit the common Lebensfeld, seeing the world as marked out by the customs, institutions, and perceptions uh, that are the legacy of religion. This is what we witness in the writings of 19th century secularists, such as John Stuart Mill, Jules Michelet, or Henry Thoreau. Their world bears the stamp of a shared religion. The human form for them is still divine. The free individual still shines in their world with a more than earthly illumination, and the hidden goal of all their writings is to ennoble the human condition. Such writers did not experience their loss of faith <coughs> as a loss, since in a very real sense they hadn't lost religion. They had rejected various metaphysical ideas and doctrines, but still inhabited the world that faith had made, the world of secure commitments, of marriage and love, of obsequies and christenings, of real presences in ordinary lives, and exalted visions in art. Their world, like Matthew Arnold's and Richard Wagner's, was a world where the sacred, the forbidden, and the sacramental were widely recognized and socially endorsed. This condition found idealized expression in the Gothic revival, um, a movement of which, to which Princeton University bears uh, stunning testimony. 
Uh, and it was, uh, is witnessed also in the writings of the principal high Victorian advocate of the Gothic revival, John Ruskin. Nobody knows whether Ruskin was a vestigial Christian, Christian believer, a fellow traveler, or an atheist profoundly attached to the medieval vision of a society <coughs> ordered by faith. His exhortations, however, are phrased in the diction of the Book of Common Prayer. His response to the science and art of his day is penetrated by the spirit of religious inquisition, and his recommendations to the architect are for the building of the heavenly Jerusalem. The Gothic style, as he described and commended it, was to recapture the sacred for a secular age. It was to offer visions of sacrifice and consecrated labor, and so counter the dispiriting products of the industrial machine. It would be, in the midst of our utilitarian madness, a window onto the transcendental, where once again we could pause and wonder, and where our souls would be filled with the light of forgotten worlds. The attack on the Gothic revival by the modernists, the Bauhaus, Le Corbusier, Pevsner and others, was part of the second wave of secularization. The attack began with a call to honesty. The message was, we no longer believe, so why pretend? Why pretend that the city is a holy place rather than a place that serves merely human purposes? Why deck out our buildings with symbols of the transcendental when we have ceased entirely to believe it, in it? That surely was the real motive behind architectural modernism, and it is what explains the puritanical and iconoclastic fervor of that mo movement. Modernism was sweeping away the old religion in the name of a new social order that was to dispense entirely with the gods. This modernism in architecture went hand in hand with socialist and fascist projects to rid old Europe of its hierarchical past, to reshape it as a godless but orderly society which would live in honest recognition that it is man, not God, who is the final purpose. Secularization was no longer content with shoring up the old institutions from purely human resources. The old institutions had to be destroyed and replaced with purely man-made and functional devices that would meet the needs of a society that had cast off the fetters of religious dogma. This second wave of secularization launched itself with a plethora of manifestos, modernist, futurist, dataist, symbolist, socialist, by way of announcing the absolute break with the past that the puritanical atheists of the 19th century had been so reluctant to make. It began, in short, with a self-conscious attempt to believe in itself. But the attempt didn't last. Once the Second World War, itself a product of modernist ideas, was over, the second wave of secularization proceeded apace, not as a form of belief, but as an ever-growing vagueness and cynicism about the nature and destiny of humanity, an ever-expanding permissiveness that has wiped away the last depositories of the sacred from the public world. <clears throat> this second wave of secularization has changed entirely the experience of ordinary people in modern societies. Whatever the state of their faith and whatever community they may identify in their hearts as theirs, they find themselves in the midst uh, of a culture of near universal desecration in which human relations are voided of the old religious virtues such as innocence, sacrifice, holy vows, sacramental commitments and so on and in which little or no public acknowledgement is afforded to ideas of the sacred, the holy and the forbidden. Our institutions and our cities are alike entirely secular with no inner sanctuary where the old gods can hide. Our art is full of sacrilegious images and satires of the godly and the city is being blown apart by a new kind of joke architecture, which has put aside the puritanical discipline of the modernists in order to remind us that there is no permanence, no eternity, no heavenly city to be built in stone, but only a facetious, glassy laughter. 
In short, religion has disappeared from our social context. Even if we individually adhere to a faith of our own, it can only be in the consciousness that the world itself rejects it. Insofar as there is a a shared Lebensvelt, it is not that of our ancestors, shaped by the concepts and experiences of a common sacrament, but an entirely novel product from which the idea of human distinction of the sacred nature of our form and the consecration of our loves has been driven away. Hence we do not experience the human body as something removed from nature and consecrated to a higher sphere. Its appearance has changed from that of a divinity, the human form divine, as Blake called it, to that of an animal rooted in the natural world and obedient to its dark imperatives. This is not just a change of our beliefs. It is a change in our perceptions. The loss of religion manifests itself phenomenologically. This is strikingly confirmed, I believe, by a visit to any art gallery. The human figure has been banished from modern painting. If it appears at all, it is in the form of a photographic image. In other words, an image generated mechanically, which presents the raw physical fact. In Corot, Monet, Cézanne, Renoir, in Winslow, Homer, and Edward Hopper, figures in a landscape stand out as visitations, centers of selfhood and judgment, which fill their surroundings with images of freedom. Now, figures in a landscape are usually no more than that. Figures, animals with clothes on, colored shapes with a human outline. It is very hard for us to live with the new perception of the human body. Everything in us points back to that religious vision from which we have strayed, telling us that the human form is sacred, untouchable, and an object of awe. Hence, we experience a profound conflict in our feelings and a virulent desire to desecrate, to drag the human body down to its animal essentials and to show it as a pure object in which the light of selfhood and freedom has been extinguished. Sartre gives a beautiful description of this process in his account of sadomasochism. Uh, But things things have moved on since uh, being a nothingness. We live now in a world in which erotic feelings can no longer be easily rescued from the desecrating maelstrom of pornography, in which the human body is routinely sacked, dismembered, and reduced to bleeding chunks on the screen, in which children are brought up on images that show the body not as the place where an empirical and transcendental meet, the eye hole in the screen of nature, so to speak, but as a target, a thing to be assaulted, ravaged, and consumed, to be shown in all its contortions as a squirming, needing, agonizing worm. Those violent and sadistic images both shape and are shaped by our new perception of death as something utterly threatening, monstrous, and alien. My death is no longer a part of life, the great transition for which all else is a preparation. It comes to me from outside when the great annihilating machine suddenly turns its pitiless jaws in my direction and I too am rent apart. Hand in hand with the ceaseless, morbid portrayal of death on the screen, therefore, goes a flight from death and from the thought of death in everyday life. The cherishing of each other, which is the lived experience of our mortality, withers away, as does the habit of paying tribute to the dead and being at one with them in our thoughts. A society in flight from death is also in flight from life. Refusing to believe that the worst will happen, we cannot see that the best (coughs) requires it that whatever makes life worthwhile, be it love, adventure, children, settling, has death as its price. We lose the tragic sense of life, as Unamuno called it, and with it, the capacity to live to the full. To, To the extent that we see people as animals, the animals themselves become problematic to us. Having fallen to the sphere that is theirs, we look on them as we look on people. 
Hence arises that strange movement into which has been poured all the disappointed rage of those who need religion but cannot find it for animal liberation and animal rights. It is, I believe, possible to prove by dense philosophical argument that the other animals are metaphysically distinct from us and that properly interpreted the old view that we but not they have souls is true, though the word soul would form no part of the proof. It is possible to show that there are no grounds for attributing rights to animals or for believing that they either desire or are capable of, of liberation. Nevertheless, philosophical argument is of no help in dissuading people who don't understand the point, since philosophical arguments, <coughs> unlike religious beliefs, do not issue in perceptions. In the Lebenswelt, as religion shapes it, an animal occupies a different place from a person. An animal is not seen as a center of selfhood and freedom, it is not a source of shame or judgment, but a normal part of the empirical world, sharing some of our feelings with us, but never aspiring to the noble, the true, or the good. From that perception of animals stems the old morality that forbids us to treat people as animals or animals as people. But when the perception dwindles and disappears, so too does the traditional morality. Again, uh, we might look to art as an illustration of what I mean. In uh, Titian's news, you will find beside the body of the woman a lapdog, serenely observing this expanse of female flesh. Dogs have no conception of what it is to be naked, and their calm unembarrassability before the sight of human flesh reminds us of how very different the human form is in their eyes and in ours. In this way, Titian returns us to the Garden of Eden, instructing us that we are not to see this body as naked, as though the woman were exposing herself to us in the manner of the girl on page 3. The nude sexuality is not offered to us, but remains latent and expectant within her, awaiting the lover to whom it can be offered, not shamelessly, but nevertheless without shame. The dog reminds us that she, unlike him, is capable of shame, while being neither ashamed nor shameless. In other words, she is a religious being, bearer of the religious virtues of innocence and shame. This stupendous fact is presented to us not as a thought or a theory, but as a revelation, the kind of revelation that, for the religious view of things, is contained in every human form, but which is of necessity hidden by our daily commerce and retrieved and clarified by art. Titian's nude is exactly what the Bible says she is, a creature made in God's image. In such a work of art, we encounter the difference between human and animal as a phenomenological fact and one with immense, momentous consequences. For many people today, however, it is not a fact at all, but an illusion. As I say, I think that they are wrong, but the argument that will show them to be wrong is one that they will resist to the end for the reason that their experience can make no sense of it. The second wave of secularization I have suggested involves an attempt to rid the world of the sacred, the forbidden, and the sacramental. This attempt is not consciously made any more than children consciously try to free themselves from the home, or jealous lovers consciously enumerate the failings of their rivals. Like religion itself, secularization is a social process, propelled by an invisible hand towards a goal that nobody need intend and which everybody may regret. Moreover, the second wave of secularization has about it a kind of urgency, an intemperate dislike of opposition, and a refusal to countenance dissent uh, uh, that, are re re that are reminiscent of religious sects. You see this, for example, in the American movements in favor of abortion and gay marriage. Both of those practices threaten ancient feelings about the sacred and the sacramental. 
but both are regarded by their advocates as causes from which it may be deepest heresy to dissent. Likewise, the movement to remove prayers from public schools, to forbid courthouses to display the Ten Commandments, to remove all reference to God from the coinage and public symbols of the United States. These are not mildly voiced opinions issued by people who wonder just how far they should impose their views on their believing fellow citizens. They are passionate causes, often pursued with a zealotry that only religions are normally thought to promulgate. In short, the second wave of secularization, after a period of cynicism and doubt, has given rise to a curious simulacrum of the religious frame of mind. The new distaste for heresy and desire for conformity suggests that secular ideology is now attempting to fill the gap left by the old forms of social membership. But it is unlike the religious frame of mind in a crucial particular, namely that it has no clear conception of the sacred, the consecrated, or the sacramental. Its rituals are spare and uncertain, and its occasions for sacred awe non-existent, or almost so. But this is where the picture becomes difficult to decipher. If you look at Western societies from the angle of traditional religion, you will see a seemingly inexorable flood of desecration directed not at religious, feeling, at religious symbols, but, but at the thing on which they all depend, the human body and the human face. But if you look at our societies with the eyes of an impartial anthropologist seeking to understand the wellsprings of our social emotions, you will uncover quite a different picture. You will discover celebrity cults which mirror the cults of local saints and local gods. You will discover outbreaks of millenarian religion, such as we witnessed in Jonestown, or religious movements like the Nation of Islam, founded on far-fetched myths but promising redemption in the midst of squalor. You will discover uh, gods that have died and been resurrected, like Elvis. You will uncover acts of ritual sacrifice in which the celebrity is murdered, like John Lennon, as the supreme tribute of a love that could not bear him to remain longer on this polluted earth. You will even find the ritual scapegoating described by René Girard. We saw this, for example, in England during the strange canonization of Princess Diana, when vast crowds of people congregated in places vaguely associated with the princess's name to deposit wreaths, messages, and teddy bears. <coughs> the very same people who had, in their pitiless prurience, hounded Diana to her death, now sought absolution from her ghost. Here was beauty, royalty, distinction, punished like Oedipus for its fault, to become a sacrificial offering and therefore a saintly intercessor before the mysteries that govern the world. We were in the presence of a primordial yearning for the sacred, one reaching back to the very earliest dream pictures of mankind and recorded in a thousand myths and rituals. And you will find, too, a kind of satanic attempt to, cast, to catch last glimpses of the sacred in the actions that wipe it away. It is this, I believe, that explains the extraordinary rise in child pornography, a practice that is not confined to the vile images that are available on the Internet, but to the most ordinary ways that people have adopted in dressing and addressing their children. The eight-year-old girl in G-string and earrings is there to taunt us. She is simultaneously childlike and knowing, a creature torn between worlds and on the verge of desecration. By dressing their children in this way and encouraging them to copy the lubricious dances and sensual throes of their parents, people are conjuring out of the sewer of desecration a last sad image of the human form in its innocence as the currents of pollution bear it away. To cut a long story short, I do not believe that the second wave of secularization, for all its quasi-religious zeal, has reduced the religious needs of our species. 
We may have lost belief in the transcendental, but our hunger for the sacred still erupts into the public world in grotesque forms that would be comic were they not signs of a deep emotional disorder, of a refusal to accept the sacred in the only form that has actually been offered to us. Here then, in conclusion, is how I would describe our current situation at the end of the second wave of secularization. <coughs> it is a situation without precedent, so far as I can see, in the history of the world, and one which people may endorse in their heads, but are in many cases unable to accept in their hearts. Western societies are organized by secular institutions, secular customs, and secular laws, and there is little or no mention of the transcendental, either as the ground of worldly authority or the ultimate court of appeal in all our conflicts. The situ that situation is not new. It was with us in the 19th century when it coexisted with widespread religious faith among the people and a respectable, respectful skepticism among the elite. New, however, is the widespread repudiation of the sacred, the chasing away of div divine shadows from the life of the body, the life of the city, the life of the feelings, and the life of the mind. Attempts at sacramental relations like marriage are scorned, a marriage itself reconstituted in a way anticipated by Kant, who defined it as a contract for the mutual use of the sexual organs. Not surprisingly, he remained a bachelor. <laughs> Custom... Custom and ceremony have no real place in modern life. With the evaporation of the sacred comes the vanishing of the religious virtues of innocence, piety, and shame. When we look back at Victorian society, we are tempted to admire the achievements of that first wave of secularization. Religious tolerance, private security, and individual freedom had all been achieved by the simple expedient of government based in secular laws. At the same time, the religious virtues had remained in place, manifest nowhere more evidently than in the lives of the righteous atheists who are taking charge of things. I think of John Stuart Mill's autobiography, a picture of now unrecoverable innocence. The city had not yet been sacrificed to its function, nor had custom and ceremony ceased to exert their benign jurisdiction over the lives of ordinary people. We have retained some of those good things, notably the religious tolerance and private security that secular law make possible. In many respects, we also enjoy as much, if not more, freedom than our Victorian forebears. But the freedoms we enjoy are freedoms that they would not have countenanced, indeed, which they would have seen as profoundly destructive of the social order, notably the freedom to publish and distribute obscene and destructive images. The Victorians had managed to retain the image of the sacred in place, as one might retain a fresco while rebuilding the wall to which it clings. That, in my view, is a truer description of Ruskin and the Gothic revival than the banal charge of dishonesty. But the second wave of secularization has wiped this image from the public face of Western society. The first wave of secularization offered no real offense to the religious way of life. Communities could enjoy under its tolerant protection the deeper and more heartfelt protection of their gods, who encountered no sacrilege to provoke them. The second wave of secularization is more difficult for religious communities to bear. Nor do the vacillating, doubt-based communities of modern cities seem better able to cope with it. The hunger for the sacred and the repudiation of the sacred contend unceasingly in the hearts of our citizens today. And if from time to time this contest erupts in violence, we should not be surprised. Nor should we be surprised that there are people who hope for the final destruction of our societies as a punishment for their blatant sacrilege. So how do modern societies cope with this second wave of secularization? What practice or institution can help them to live with a desacralized world? It is well for Nietzsche to say that we have art so that we shall not perish from the truth. 
but most people don't have art. Kitsch, pop and porn have driven art to the margins of their lives. And although kitsch, pop and porn don't tell the truth, their lies are demeaning lies, lies which eliminate meaning. It's partly a result of the Enlightenment view of religion that we believe that we can solve the problems caused by secularization simply by granting religious freedom. If religion is primarily a matter of belief and doctrine, then by allowing freedom of belief and freedom to discuss and proselytize, it is thought, we ensure that people will make their own religious space. Communities will be able to worship God in their own way, and rival faiths will live side by side in mutual toleration. <coughs> However, the Enlightenment view is profoundly wrong. Belief in doctrine and doctrine are a part of religion, certainly. But so too are custom, ceremony, ritual, membership, sacrifice, the division between sacred and profane, and the visceral hostility to sacrilege. By allowing religious freedom, we do nothing to stem the tide of desecration or to create a public world in which religious communities can feel truly at home. Moreover, it is naive to think that every kind of religious community can be governed by a secular jurisdiction. The idea of such a jurisdiction is a construct of Roman law inherited by Christianity and crystallized by the Enlightenment. Secular jurisdiction has no authority in Islamic thinking, and Western societies earn no favors in Muslim eyes by ex extending to Muslims the protection of a godless rule of law. I have no final answer to the dilemmas that I've just exposed, but let me conclude with a positive suggestion. We cannot turn back the second wave of secularization any more than Matthew Arnold could have summoned back the tide of faith on Dover Beach. But we can strive to be gentle with its victims, to recognize that ordinary people, when they ask that prayers be said in their children's schools, that offensive images be removed from TV screens and hoardings, that the outward signs of the religious life be publicly endorsed, are giving voices, voice to feelings which we may think we have grown out of, but which in fact, at the unconscious level where they live and thrive, we still experience. Anthropologists quickly learn compassion and sympathy towards the tribes they study. We should follow their example when looking on the tribe that is ours. Most of all, we should learn that religion, properly understood, is an immovable part of the human condition, manifest as much in the free spirits who sneer at it as in the pious souls, <coughs> souls for whom it is the fount of consolation. <coughs> it is time for the law to distance itself from sacrilege and to recognize that the freedoms recognized in the First Amendment do not include the freedom to poison the most precious emotions that we have. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Roger. Thank you very much, Professor Scruton, for your splendid uh, address in which you really have touched the issues that concern us as scholars, but even more as human beings. That's why I think your words were so warm and so inspiring. Our next speaker, the first commentator, is Eric Gregory. Eric joined the Department of Religion Princeton, here at Princeton in 2001 a very valuable addition. He's working on a book tentatively uh, with 
uh, with a tentative title, Politics and the Order of Love, Modern Variations on Augustinian Themes. His teaching and research interests include religious and philosophical ethics, historical and modern theology, and political theory. He is a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University in Theology, and he received his doctorate in religious studies from Yale University. Thank you, Eric, for being with us today. Characteristically provocative lecture, Roger Scruton provides us with analysis of 300 years of intellectual, aesthetic, and cultural history. Kant, Hume, Princess Diana, G-Strings, The Naked and the Nude, René Girard, Elvis, and Animal Rights. What is a mere assistant professor of religion to do? I thank the Madison program for putting me on this list of other distinguished uh, speakers. Well, what to do, especially in 10 to 15 minutes? Let me invoke the usual academic caveats. Time is short. Uh, this is not really my area of expertise, but uh, surely the size of this audience suggests that these topics are too important to leave to the experts. It's not a comment to my colleagues in religious studies. First, a few words of agreement. Then, to make it interesting, I want to raise a specific issue about the relationship between religious experience and religious belief in order to express a concern that Professor Scruton's paper, ironically, has assumptions that are parasitic on distinctively modern views of religion that overestimate the unity of religious experience. That overestimate the unity of religious experience. My sense is that this view has come under compelling attack by the best theologians of our day, and I wonder if this is the direction he wants to go. I end with an illustration. To illustrate a concern by proposing an alternative that problematizes both the concept of a clash of worldviews found in the title of this session and the concept of the sacred and the secular, found in the title of Roger Scruton's lecture. Okay. First agreement. Roger Scruton's approach differs from the conceptual and linguistic analysis commonly found in English-speaking philosophy of religion and theology, which focuses primarily on issues in metaphysics and epistemology. His turn to comparative anthropology, phenomenology, and especially aesthetics, I take to be a very welcome one. These are neglected topics in serious discussions of religion and secularism, usually held with suspicion by religious and secular people alike, either because it is thought they do not admit rational inquiry or that they undermine religious faith. As an aside, I should say it doesn't help much that at least Protestant theology in the West has not had a very lively imagination about beauty as a divine attribute, or erotic desire as a human one. I think this blinds us to the way in which beauty transforms our affections in ways that arguments never do. So I want to cheer his 
the spirit, to use Augustine, if not the letter of Professor Scruton's argument. I find much of the story compelling. I share his aversion to the Enlightenment, um, at least and not to be too pedantic. I share an aversion to his version of the Enlightenment, linked with notions of autonomous freedom, the lowering of aesthetic and moral standards of excellence, the lowering uh, of the commodification of the body, and the general ugliness and baseness of modern culture, from the banality of reality TV to the ugliness uh, of the architecture of public schools. For our particular interests, I also believe Enlightenment views of religion encouraged a certain kind of secularization, views of religion that assume religious behavior is merely a result of religious belief, Rearguard Enlightenment defenses of an abstract theism predicated on a bad metaphysical story about supernaturalism accelerated the secularism we experience and I think can be found in both elite analytic philosophy of religion and apologetics found on college campuses in America. Scruton's two waves of secularization capture important elements of our history from deism to practical atheism to a justified absence of transcendence. Secularism today, however, no longer feels the need to define itself in a negative relation to faith. Militant atheists and secular ideologues still exist, but I don't think they're as important as we sometimes think. The real story is a kind of secularism beyond atheism, less polemical, more comprehensive, and more thoroughly eminent. I suspect this is the kind of secularism that is part of the lives of religious people themselves, a secularism experienced internal to the life of many religious people who profess or hold some things to be sacred but rarely are able to perceive them as such. I admire his willingness not to repeat a familiar doom and gloom picture of modernity, a story of decay that reduces the religious to the ethical, invokes liberalism as a trope for all that is wrong with the world, and fails to distinguish the philosophical project of some thinkers from a set of social practices in liberal institutions. He acknowledges these achievements, the spread of religious tolerance, individual freedom that secular law makes possible, even if, as I believe, the story that secularists tell themselves is misleading, and the very intensity of the secular struggle against to contain religious dogmatism creates blind spots within secularism itself. I would quibble with a few things. I wonder if gratitude rather than innocence is the paradigmatic religious virtue. And I suspect religion has not disappeared from the social context of many regions of the world, those places where people don't read The Guardian and The New York Times every day. Kitsch, pop, and porn are part of globalization, but so is the great geographical shift going on in Christianity, at least. And I wonder what a global perspective on these themes would yield. I suspect Professor Jenkins will talk about this in his lecture. One more brief note. I'm enough of an Augustinian to think that Karl Marx and Max Weber got some things right. And I wonder how ways that economic and bureaucratic life disorders our human loves fits into the story. For someone interested in the materiality of human experience, these may be the real dark pollution rather than what Professor Scruton called the light pollution of Enlightenment philosophy. But that discussion waits another day. Okay, my main concern. I want to question a fundamental premise. To be blunt, I am not sure that the comparative study of religion tells us that the roots of religious feeling lie below the level of consciousness. 
If it does, then I guess I disagree with the comparative study of religion. I guess I don't think it's a helpful way to frame our situation. Historically, this view is intelligible within the context of the Enlightenment view of religion itself, even if it stands against it by bracketing religious beliefs in order to focus on some (coughs) pre-linguistic experience of religious consciousness. I disagree with this approach because it drives a wedge between religious doctrine and religious experience. There is no such thing as an er-religious experience (coughs) of the sacred that precedes our expression. At least, no er-religious experience grounded in our deepest emotions that are somehow threatened by modernity. At one point, Professor Scruton claims the Second World War was a product of modernist ideas. I tripped over this sentence. How can modernist ideas matter so much? He wants to move away from the focus on religious doctrine, but surely we can't have it both ways in attributing the ills of modernity to modernist ideas, yet refusing to think religious doctrines are not a large part of the story. I agree that religion is in some sense a social fact, (coughs) certainly not a self-alienating illusion or projection. But what I disagree with is the notion that religious experience is based in something called our deepest emotions. Scruton's view of religion and so of secularism, it seems to me, is not the progeny of so much of Durkheim and the effort to move beyond metaphysical speculation to see religion as a social discipline, but those counter-enlightenment thinkers we associate with romanticism. Scruton may not be an orthodox romantic, but I think he shares the judgment that secularism makes the experience of spiritual dimensions of life more and more difficult, that secularism sterilizes the world, hinders our capacity to transcend the profane plane of the ordinary and transform the mundane world through myth, ritual, and sacred space. I share the aesthetic judgments made in this paper, I cheer moving beyond the high arts to focus on the aesthetics of the city, something that romanticism rarely did in its effort to make art salvific. I think there's a relationship between our sensory experience of the world and our religiosity. The very physicality, dare I say animality, of being human affects our experience of the world. But I don't think doctrines and truth claims are mere window dressing for the real stuff of religion the rituals, the rites, and the experiences. The interplay between experience and doctrine is what matters. I think this view has the added advantage of helping explain why people of different religions don't just talk differently about the same experience of the sacred. They have different experiences. 9-11 and the continuing prospects of religious conflict warrant paying attention to the particular beliefs of religions. I could imagine ways that this account might actually bolster Professor Scruton's analysis, but that's not my task. Let me end with an illustration. A different story could be told about the rise of secularism. For example, one that focuses not on Kant and Hume, but a series of theological missteps made within Christendom itself. This story might focus on the disenchantment of the world made possible by late medieval nominalism that prepares the way for a world drained of its real relation to God Distancing God from the world in a way that no longer weaves together the experience of subjectivity and the transcendent and makes religious faith less and less concrete and more and more speculative. This story has a lot of hold in contemporary religious thought. But I want to end by telling an older story. It was not secular modernity that was hostile to the shadows where the gods were hiding, 
but Christianity itself. Christianity cleansed the world of its pagan festivals, its hippodromes, its baths, its arts of magic, so that humanity could worship the one true God of Israel. Christians were called foolish because they rejected the venerable tradition of the Roman past. They wouldn't play the lighthearted game of polytheistic tolerance. Augustine's great classic, The City of God, narrates this story at a time when the opposite of secularization was taking place, preparing for that medieval world critics of secularism often celebrate. It was this process of de-secularization where Christianity forced the sphere of the secular to contract into the sacred that I think prepared the way for the secularity of the modern world. Augustine was betrayed by his medieval followers. For him, the secular is where the sacred and the profane mix. The world is not religiously neutral, to be sure, but the secular is the shared space afforded to all humanity by the common grace of God in this ambiguous time between the times. Augustine was classical enough to have an imagination for the ancient city. It was not, for him, as for some Christians, merely a temptation. He held hope for the redemption of the city. But with both love and despair for this world, he came to see that Rome, like the world, can never live up to the expectations human beings tend to place upon it. Augustine's eschatology and anthropology, marked by the separation of the earthly city and the heavenly city, does not split the ideal and the real, just as it does not separate politics from the aspirations of virtue. But it lowers our pretensions to think that the human city can be the heavenly one. And so it tempers the kind of lament we have about the secular world. It protects us from the hubris of those who want to relate every aspect of the world directly to the sacred. Augustine was not a proto-Rawlsian, just as he was not a proto-Hobbesian, and certainly not preparing the way for Harvey Cox. But he does start the long path, pressed by Protestants in the early modern period, that led to a theological affirmation of the secular as secular, of things common to this mortal life, which includes the task of crafting a more beautiful world with our fellow human beings. This Augustinian view and here I come to an end, is often accused of turning history into a waiting game for salvation, the earth into a hollow stage. I disagree, but I do think the challenge today is to overcome the Christian tendency to put the transcendent and the imminent in competition with one another, to imagine them as contrasting binary terms. To do this, Christianity may need to drink more deeply from its mystical traditions and stop thinking of God as simply another subject or object in the universe. My main point is that secularism needs to be rethought not merely as a political or moral challenge, but what it has always been, a theological one. I tend to see, at least in the West, modern secularism as the prodigal son of Christianity. Scruton knows that we cannot turn back the clock. This now is one of our traditions. Our task is to think and imagine a better kind of secularism, hopefully one less brutalizing and base than the kind we experience today. 
For this, we surely need more saints, not more theologians. But I think widespread theological and biblical illiteracy contributes to the form secularism takes today. I'm increasingly pessimistic about the strategies religious critics offer us against secularism. The clash of worldviews mentality is impotent, not just because it so often fails, promising a kind of premature possession of the sacred, but more importantly, because in its very abstractions, it deprives Christians of the liturgical, sacramental, and Christological vision that shapes and governs their view of the world. Professor Scruton ends his paper with a call for us to be gentle to the victims of secularization. I cheer this call for charity and sympathy, though I suspect we differ on the particular issues he cites. Those matters, it seems to me, are questions for justice and perhaps pragmatic accommodation. But I have to think the virtues of charity and sympathy are needed on all sides of this debate. Critique is one mode of religious thought, but not the only one. Perhaps fostering virtues related to charitably engaging others is the best way to move the discussion about faith and the challenge of secularism forward. And to turn the title of this conference on its head, the best witness that might allow secularists to be open to the challenge of the mystery of faith. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Eddie. Told you, I told you that Eric Gregory is a very valuable addition to Princeton. Now, our next speaker is Professor James Kurt. He is Claude Smith Professor of Political Science at Swarthmore College, where he teaches international politics, foreign policy, defense policy, and he is the, the author of some 80 articles and the editor of two volumes in the fields of international politics, foreign policy and politics of Western nations. He has been a, a visiting member of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, visiting professor of political science at the University of California at San Diego, and visiting professor of strategy at the U.S. Naval War College. Thank you, Professor Kurth, for joining us. Well, it's important that every speaker, uh, every commentator, find something in the original paper to uh, criticize. Uh, but actually, I had found very little to criticize and had wanted to spend most of my time uh, praising the paper of Professor, Scru uh, uh, Professor Scruton, and indeed I will do so. The one aspect that I was going to criticize, fortunately, has been articulated by uh, Professor Gregory, and that was that one should look at the differences amongst different religions, uh, different uh, doctrines of different communities uh, and see that perhaps particular faith communities might de develop particular ways of solving many of the uh, and addressing many of the problems that Professor Scruton has uh, uh, talked about. 
but uh, so I will associate myself with those comments of Professor Gregory. But in my own presentation, let me especially underline and sometimes extend uh, some of the basic conceptions of the paper by Roger Scruton. Uh, in particular, I want to elaborate on his two waves of secularization, and I want to do that in regard to essentially three concepts or levels. His focus on community, the centrality of community. Second, his focus on aesthetics, uh, and especially the vision of architecture, which is, after all, the most communal of the arts. And then third, his focus on the centrality or the practice of sacrifice, the so-called communal act of primitive violence that is so much the bind in, uh, of communities and perhaps the origin of some religions. Uh, so let me first say something in extension about these two waves of secularization. The first wave of secularization, you recall, uh, was, the, was the 19th century, a period of secularization without desacralization. The sacred remained, uh, at least in the outer expressions, in the arts and architecture, for example. Now, Professor Scruton focuses on that particular era as being characteristic by the Gothic revival. I would actually like to divide that uh, first wave of secularization, roughly from the Enlightenment to the First World War, into two periods. Uh, there was, I think, initially the classical revival, an effort to move beyond the Middle Ages by reaching back to the past, the classical past, and the conception of the community that developed then, the kind of imagined community, if you will, uh, was of the uh, new nation uh, or nation-state um, but the image of what a proper nation would be was republican, classical. And it's no accident, as Professor Scruton uh, suggests, that even the very figures, almost sacred-like figures, of this classical, not religious revival, this classical revival would partake of something like religious uh, elements. For example, the figure in the French Revolution of Marianne, obviously is evoking Mary, uh, and uh, more broadly of liberty in here in the United States, that we have uh, uh, efforts to kind of have a new version of some of the symbols of both the religious and the classical past. Of course, the uh, uh, classical revival of the early 19th century was expressed in the greatest architectures that were being produced at that time. The public architecture, such as the Capitol building of the United States, the private architecture, most dramatically, those of southern plantations in Greek revival, and even in the Princeton architecture, as in Whig and Cleo. Uh, and so there was the classical revival that uh, was uh, uh, being uh, I think was the first stage prior to the Gothic revival. But the uh, first stage of secularization did produce, uh, one way or the other, out of the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, a series of great catastrophes and, yes, monumental human sacrifices. And in part in reaction to that, the era of reaction was an effort to go back to a different past, and that was, of course, the Christian past, the Gothic past, and that is the core of the Gothic revival that Professor Scruton focuses so much on. Here, the imagined community, here, the nation, uh, was not so much the Republican nation, but the kind of organic nation, the historical nation, and here, the 
figures representing the nation were not so much young women such as Mary Ann or Liberty, but rather more dowdy, more organic, older women such as Britannia and Germania, and indeed they, she was perfectly represented, Britannia, in, of course, Queen Victoria. So it's no accident that we have the uh, uh, public architecture of the day being the Houses of Parliament, the Victorian residential architecture, and of course here in Princeton, uh, the chapel, uh, and indeed uh, our own building that we are in today. Uh, but that particular era uh, uh, that uh, ended in a kind of tension, an effort to bring some kind of unification between the classical and the uh, Gothic revivals, and therefore we got a kind of unity in a number of features, including in the architecture of the time. Romanesque architecture, literally lying between the classical era and the medieval era, becomes the popular architecture at the end of the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th century. But, more, but much more significantly in terms of public identity of the national community uh, that is uh, symbolized uh, um, in the uh, industrial organized nation state is the Beaux-Arts uh, buildings of the, are the Beaux-Arts buildings of the time, the Library of Congress, the New York Public Library, Union Station, and of course Penn Station. But that era also ended in a period of monumental human sacrifice that is to say, in World War I. And it is no accident that the war memorials scattered around the world, especially Europe and the British Empire, those war memorials to the, those who were sacrificed in World War I very much evoke the idea of the Gothic revival of shrines, of churches. That's the distinctive architecture of the last gasp, if you will, the burial of that first wave of secularization. Then comes the second, second wave, uh, secularization as full desacralization. In other words, removing, as, as uh, Roger Scruton said, all of the elements, the historicists, be they classical or be they Gothic. Uh, elements, and that the modernist project would confidently move forward without any of that heritage of the transcendental sacred. But the national community that was then being conceived would be a much broader, denser community. Uh, there would be the national project joined with the, the social project. Uh, ideologies would place theologies. Uh, and therefore, the great exemplars of this, as, as Roger Scruton suggests, are Soviet communism, national socialism, and in the American version, the New Deal. It, too, will have its distinctive architecture. Soviet constructivism, fascist, austere, Albert Speer-type classicism, New Deal architecture like the buildings on the Mall, or a latter-day, softer version at, Woodrow, uh, the, at Princeton, the Woodrow Wilson School. <laughs> but this era also ended in yet another great sacrifice, indeed a series of great sacrifices, uh, World War II, the Holocaust, and the Gulag. And so it was then followed by the second phase of the second wave, the phase that most of us have spent virtually our, all our lives in. Uh, and that is postmodernism. Secularization as total desacralization, not just of the transcendental God, but then of the intimate, 
the sacred or at least revered state that was the characteristic of Soviet communism, national socialism, and even the American New Deal. And what is the conception of the community uh, in this four second phase of the second wave, the phase that characterizes roughly the last generation or two? Well, it's actually a rejection of community and of any conception, a rejection of the nation, a rejection of the social, uh, and the full expression, yes, of expressive individualism. What is the architecture of this era? Oh, I suppose the architecture of the postmodern era would, of course, be postmodern architecture. But more fundamentally, it's exactly what Roger Scruton says, joke architecture. I tried to look around the Princeton campus to find examples of joke architecture. I did find a high modern, not postmodern, building uh, right over in this direction, and that is the School of Architecture. <laughs> I will not say what I thought of the School of Architecture, but I was reminded of a common cliche amongst historians of, of university architecture that if you, will go, if you want to find the School of Architecture in any university, you go and find the ugliest building. <laughs> but perhaps I didn't really need to find, uh, that was, that's an example of high modern uh, architecture. But uh, perhaps I didn't really need to find an actual building of joke architecture. As I walked past the chapel this morning, I saw on the entrance to the chapel a rather garish, skull-like face. And that, of course, is a uh, face of uh, advertisement for Phantom of the Opera, a perfect example of the intrusion of the profane into the sacred. I don't know if Professor Scruton arranged to have that as a prop for his lecture, <laughs> but there it is for all to see. What is the sacrifice that the community, such as it is, of the postmodern demands of its people? Uh, we know the sacrifices of the French Revolution, Napoleonic Wars, of the First World War, of the Second World War, of the Holocaust and the Gulag. What is the sacrifice that the era of full expressive individualism demands of its believers? This answer to this is not obvious to the secular person. But, of course, for those who have religious faith, there is an answer. And that answer is abortion, the sacrifice of the unborn. Perhaps in the fullness of time, that is to say, as the baby boomers reach the fullness of their end, the end of their lives, vast number of baby boomers in their 80s, roughly 25 years from now, perhaps there will be a new form of sacrifice at the other end of the life cycle, euthanasia. Well, as Roger Scruton says, uh, we now live in a totally unprecedented time. Uh, we're at the end of the fourth uh, phase, that is to say, the second uh, wave of the second, uh, the second phase of the second wave. Uh, we are at the end of these four phases, and we have arrived at uh, a total rejection of community and of the sacred, uh, a total exaltation of secularization in the form of the profane. And is it possible that we could remain in that era for a long time, that uh, this is an enduring era? 
Roger Scruton suggests that we can't roll back the era of secularization. We just might have to make it a kinder, gentler version, and that might well be the case. But let me suggest, or more to the point, let me recall some of the suggestions that Roger Scruton himself made. There are intimations already of a new phase, of a post-desacralization phase. Intimations in the whole conception of identity politics, of lifestyle communities, of multiculturalism, which probably will end in multicultism, many cults, including celebrity cults. Uh, it's an, uh, intimations of an era where we are uh, having growing spirituality without doctrine and organization, as in New Age. Or for others, ad hoc rituals, teddy bears along uh, places in the highway where someone has died. Or the outpouring, as Professor Scrookin said, uh, uh, in the aftermath of the death of Diana. Intimations of a re-sacralization, of a de-secularization, as we enter in for the first time into this new phase. Well, there's not yet an architecture of that, but there's an aesthetics of that, as Roger Scruton suggested. Isn't it interesting that what is being done with the body today, as in body piercing, as in two tattoo tattooing, why it's rather like the aesthetics, the body, a beautification aesthetics of pagan tribes. And so if we have a new conception of community, uh, multicultism, lifestyle communities, and a new sense emerging of aesthetics, is it possible we'll have a new sense of sacrifice? Not just resacralization, but resacrificing. What will be the form? of sacrifice in this new fifth phase. Well, a few months ago, during the cold winter, I went to the Yucatan to escape from the winters of the Northeast. And I went and visited the Mayan ruins. Many years ago, I had visited these ruins. And in those days, it was taught at Stanford uh, that the Mayan were a highly organized community organized around elaborate religious rituals, uh, and that these rituals and the communities were, in fact, very peaceful. And, of course, uh, this had produced exceptionally beautiful architecture and aesthetics. Indeed, the Mayans were distinguished by a cult of beauty. And that was true and remains true, and it remains taught. But in the last few decades, more has been discovered about the Mayans. In addition to the highly organized communities, the elaborate religious rituals, rituals, the exceptionally beautiful architecture and aesthetics, the call to beauty, the Mayans also turn out to have engaged in very extensive mutilation of the body. Tattoos, body piercing, head shaping. They also happen to have extended, extended into massive uh, sacrifice of human beings. It's not surprising that a culture that, in which one mutilates one's own body might readily mutilate somebody else's. Of course, this particular kind of union of an intense community, uh, uh, religious rituals, cult of beauty, 
mutilation of the body and massive human sacrifice, that was not unique to the Mayans in their era. Uh, it was very common in other parts of the world, most obviously uh, from the Old Testament, we know from the Canaanites and the people who lived before the Israelites entered into there. It turns out that in many ways, the dirty secret of the human race is human sacrifice. In some ways, human sacrifice is the default position of many human communities. Human communities sacrifice to the gods they have created in their own image. How did the human race get out of that? It was a major achievement, perhaps a divine miracle, that lifted human communities out of the centrality of sacrifice, out of the, primordial, uh, the common act of primitive violence that Roger Scruton was referring to. It was a major achievement, perhaps a divine miracle, that lifted some human communities out of that. Of course, the story begins with God providing the ram to substitute for Isaac. And he provides us for, for Abraham and for the Jews that would come. Although the sacrificial system of rams and later lambs, of course, was abolished in the Jewish system with the destruction of the Second Temple, uh, the sacrifice of sheep and especially lambs continues in Islam. Uh, Professor Kruten uh, mentions this in passing in his paper. And then, of course, as one moved from the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures to the Christian scriptures, from the Old Covenant or Testament to the New Covenant or Testament, then God sacrifices himself or his own son to bring an end to all sacrificial official systems and lifts mankind definitively out of the sacrificial system, including the system of human sacrifice. When the Enlightenment project abolished God from their world, when they removed the God who had sacrificed himself for his own son, it also abolished the abolition of the sacrificial system. The full desacralization uh, or the full desacrificing of the world uh, may not be a stable condition. Even the partial efforts of the last 200 years have created sacri human sacrifice on a massive scale. The desacralization, the desecularization and the resacralization of the future may recreate many communities around which, around many gods, gods which in their, made in the image of those communi human communities uh, that created them. And these gods may one day, once again, demand human sacrifice. And human communities will remain in that condition until, once again, they reach out and accept a god who has provided a sacrifice for them, either as he provided a ram for Isaac and the Jews, or as he provided his own son for the Christians and for those who would, by faith, believe. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your fascinating analysis. We now have time, a fair amount of time, because lunch, as many other things, can be postponed, not indefinitely.
Not some things, Maurizio. Yeah, some something. <laughs> well, honest, no. <laughs> Excessive severity is not a virtue. Who wants to open the discussion? I'm sure... Ah, I was... Please, could you introduce yourself? I can't see the name from this distance. No, just... just. Uh, my name is Dwight Carey. Thank you. Uh, the question is for the entire panel. I believe it was Napoleon who said that the entire scaffolding of modern reason falls before the presence of faith. But what we see a hundred and some years later is that the scaffold is nothing more than a lot of shallowness and height. So therefore, be it secularism or be it faith, how do we go back to depth of thought and depth of questioning? Because our entire society today seems to be one based on shallowness both of question and shallowness of answer and occupation and pastime. So I'm not concerned that secularism has a true answer or faith has a true answer, but how does either address the shallowness and depth of lack of depth of thought? Thank you. Thank you very much. Who wants to respond to this line? I think Professor Scruton is almost in duty to do that. <laughs> but also Eric would not end Professor do, do we want to take several questions? Yes, why not? Let's several. summarize. Let's, if, if your memory is better than mine, you certainly do that. Who else wants to? Yes, please. presenting um, a perception of a fear of where we are in that there's a, a systems that exist and these systems are now, the, the title being clash, the clash that's going on, as an opportunity to understand what we're moving toward or in a way to move forward. Um, Mr. Gregory had stated something to the effect of the experience of religion and the belief and I'm wondering how any of you within your thoughts and your expertise can talk about the bridge that is love that can and will potentially be that which is a sustaining factor for all humanity. Thank you very much. Well, oh, I see various peoples here. May I give this? Okay, and then we move to the left. Okay. <laughs> well, a last chance from the right then. Uh, <laughs> uh, on Gregory's um, uh, very suggestive uh, image of the prodigal son, uh, a question about where we are now in that story. I take it uh, uh, feeding the swine without anything to eat and reflecting that, or the father's cattle eat better. Uh, but, but the return was, well, I, I wonder what kind of return then uh, you would anticipate for secularism in relation to the faith. Because as I recall the story, the prodigal son doesn't just negotiate with the father on some sort of compromise position or something like that. You said it was a matter of justice. So I'm wondering whether it's that sort of wholehearted return uh, in humility or not. And, and I'd invite uh, Mr. Scruton's comment on that image and whether he sees that as 
consonant with his own suggestion, because it wasn't clear to me whether the last thing he mentioned, that sort of constitutional compassion for those of religious feelings, whether that would be a third wave of secularization or whether it, too, would prepare some kind of return. Yes, Thank you. On that side, you see... Professor Paul Sigmund, another of my colleagues. John Lindsay said, in as pornograph, sex shops essentially spread on 42nd Street, that 42nd Street is the price of the First Amendment. Um, and uh, I guess my question is, uh, what is the program of Professor Scruton for resacralization, and does it include the use of the coercive instruments of the law to outlaw same-sex marriage, to outlaw abortion, uh, to promote public religion, though no particular religion, in the interest of, of stemming the tide of desacralization? Well, this gentleman is near enough. This will actually be uh, the flip side to Professor Sigmund's question. In your talk, uh, Professor Scruton, you despaired of what you see as the decline in the visual arts. My highbrow tastes don't run to the visual arts, they run to, to music. And I think of uh, Henrik Miklach Goretzky, Arvo Pert, John Tavener, and James McMillan, who have all produced wonderful music inspired and motivated by their faith. And, uh, of course, Goretzky in part uh, did most of their work while their countries were dominated by the Soviets. Um, but Tavener and Macmillan are British, and I'd like your thoughts on the revival of music of that sort inspired in that way, and also to know whether there are any such composers in America. Thank you. Uh, I don't want to be accused of uh, privileging the left over the, the right, so I would like this gentleman to have the chance to speak. From our point of view, we're on the left, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> Robert Jensen, uh, I'd like to press the point that Eric Gregory made. Um, it has been, to my mind, convincingly argued that modernity did not so much inaugurate a new attitude toward religion as invent religion. That is to say, invent the notion that there is an essence of religiosity of which then religions are, are individual instances. And I, I would wonder what difference accepting that kind of argument would make, uh, particularly to Professor Scruton's presentation. Well, last question, and then we have to give our speakers the chance to respond, please. I'd like to follow up on what Paul Sigmund was saying and ask the panel to address the question of fundamentalism and its use of coercion, whether by law or violence, to inflict their opinions on others. And I would include in fundamentalism, obviously, not only Islamic fundamentalism, but Jewish as well as Christian. And in terms of the embracing of violence in opposition to abortion, we have seen murders and bombings in the United States, and in opposition uh, in Judaism, we have seen the settlements and acts of violence by some of their members. And the last point, I wonder if you would comment on the question of capital punishment as a form of community sacrifice, one in which requires participation by a jury 
in then going forward and how the spectacle of uh, capital punishment has become uh, one into the popular arts. Thank you. I would suggest that our speakers respond in the reverse order. And uh, I'd like to invite Professor Kurt to speak first, and then Professor Gregory, and last, our uh, main speaker. Actually, I think so. most of the questions were directed at uh, uh, Roger Scruton. I think it might be best to have him have the fullest opportunity to address the full range. Sure, but uh, that's why I want to have him last. Uh, Eric, you want to? <laughs> uh, sure, I'll go quickly, because I do want to hear Professor Scruton's response. Um, and I'm not sure I could keep all the questions together. I think the return of the secular, to use my prodigal son metaphor, will only be eschatological. So I am not going to propose any uh, processes by which it can be accelerated through human institutions. Um, I do think basic justice in a pluralist society should be the appeals that are made. I would differ with the way a lot of, say, contemporary procedural liberals appeal to basic justice. Um, but that's an argument I could have with them. Oh, sorry. Okay. Uh, but that would be a, a long argument. I think in, in general my response to some of the questions was I, maybe I differ. I don't think we can say we live in unprecedented times. Um, I don't think the Enlightenment project abolished God. Maybe I'm too Augustinian to think that we always live on the precipice of conflict. Um, I'm not making an argument for mediocrity or depression, but um, you know, Christianity often feels that in absence we find God. Um, so I don't think that we can contrast modernity with some deep world that is now made shallow. For that matter, if you do think that, then you should be more of a fan of postmodernity than I sense, because postmodernity is an effort to uh, reinstitute um, or overcome the violence that is embedded in the Enlightenment project. Postmodernist authors think of themselves as being deeply motivated by a moral impulse to overcome the Enlightenment project. So I tend to see the modern world as a story of gains and losses, not of um, one way or the other. That might be an Augustinian view. Um, and I think the problem is when we caricature the Enlightenment view or the postmodern view is we open ourselves to caricatures from the other side. So it encourages secularists to only see religious people as dogmatists. Um, and then just one last note. I like the appeal to love, a very Augustinian notion. Uh, my fear is it becomes fairly weak need if it's just uh, said like that. It needs to be undergirded by particular religious traditions and how they understand love. But I like the appeal to love and solidarity in a public culture, which now only valorizes respect, which has a certain distancing attitude towards one another. So I would like to see uh, love be a more part of public discourse. So on one, one last point Sorry, on capital punishment, I find it interesting in American politics that there's been a shift in the past 20 years where religious communities increasingly are uh, opposed to the death penalty. You know, one notice prominently the Catholic Church, but I think that's generally true. It's always been true of the mainline traditions, but even evangelical traditions in the United States now are beginning to signal opposition to the death penalty. I don't know what cultural remark that means, um, but there we go. Professor, Professor Kurt, you would like to say something? A couple of comments. Uh, I'd like to also uh, re uh, address the question of love. Uh, and the uh, place it might have. 
Um, and I, here I want to associate myself with what Professor Gregory said earlier, that it's important to look at the differences in religion. Uh, and uh, I do think different religions, although all of them will emphasize love, they will have different definitions of the extent or the scope of that. And it is natural for, every, for a religion, especially when viewed from the anthropological perspective, to love those within the community, within the communion, and outside the church, outside the community, there is no salvation, so to speak. Uh, perfectly understandable, and Professor Scruton's uh, paper shows that a comparative study of religion would give rise to that. Then the question is, uh, what are the conditions under which love becomes outside the community, not just the neighbor who is nearby in the community, but, and not just within the community or the communion, but even further. Uh, now, I do believe the old cliche uh, that there is no brotherhood of a man without the fatherhood of God. There has to be a God who is conceived by the community, by the particular religion, to be the father of all. That is a, the, the God has to extend their uh, his uh, uh, scale beyond the community to the world, to the uh, cosmos. Uh, and uh, I think that's, so I think that's crucial. Then if we ask, well, what religions do that? I think it is no accident that the, the word Catholic, capital C as in Roman Catholic, comes from small c Catholic, which means universal, and the idea that uh, the believers are called to lift themselves out of the closed community to something broader. Uh, so you can see where I'm going, uh, at which, at which many of you will be resisting. But I do believe that, uh, uh, yes, a, the centrality of love is crucial, but not all religions are equal in having that potential. And, of course, the great uh, failings, and I also agree with uh, Professor Gregory on this, that you, could, you should look at the history of the church and see certain missteps. That was his phrase historically. One of the great failings was to collapse uh, uh, from the universality uh, to the community uh, and, and leave it at that. Then related to the question on human sacrifice, well, of course, you can imagine, given uh, Roger Scruton's analysis and given my analysis, we would not be surprised that as you enter into an era of full desacralization, full secularization, that a fully secularized uh, community or, let's say, uh, state authorities would reach for execution uh, as one of their principal elements of their community. And my position on, uh, on execution is exactly that of John Paul II, and that is that uh, it should not... Uh, be engaged in. Thank you very much. Now, uh, Professor Scruton, you have the chance to answer the many questions you received. Your enemy is only lunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think I, I ought to, to say, before trying to address these very interesting questions from the floor, say something in response to what uh, the other speakers have said, uh, because I, I think that they deserve... Um, some kind of clarification. I, I think especially that Eric Gregory's uh, principal uh, criticism of what I had to say just does require me to respond. As I understand it, his principal criticism was that, um, that the roots of religious feeling do not lie below the level of consciousness, that religion is a form of consciousness um, and should be understood 
as an attempt to understand the world in its totality. And in that respect, uh, these um, references to uh, deep uh, symbolism and deep ritual, uh, ritual needs are perhaps um, references to a, a minor byproduct of the religious consciousness rather than the thing itself. Um, and you say, and with some element of truth, that there is rather too much romanticism in in my view of, of religion. I'm rather too influenced by those early comparative anthropologists who um, wanted to see uh, the, the deep, dark side of the human soul as somehow more important than the, uh, than the enlightened conscious side. Now, I agree that there is um, a kind of criticism here, but I did want to say, I probably obviously didn't put it as clearly as I should, that the conscious embracing of doctrine and uh, theological belief is an inevitable consequence of these uh, deep, dark feelings, and these things belong together. I would compare religion in this respect to sexual desire, which I think is rooted in the uh, species need. Nobody could deny that. It's rooted well below the area in which our conscious thoughts are normally habituated to roam, uh, but nevertheless, uh, it is something which expresses itself for, for us, for rational beings like us, in erotic love. And we have that as our life project to make it, uh, to shape it in, according to the demands of a rational choice, the choice of the other as our lifelong companion, uh, which of course is, always fails, but nevertheless uh, is still there guiding our, our thoughts and reshaping that uh, basic species need. And I feel that religion is the same, that in the end, all our efforts at, a, at theological doctrine are ways of shaping this according to the requirements of a rational uh, uh, and properly conducted existence as an individual. So I think that one can, I could probably reconcile what you say with what I say with a, a lot more uh, tedious scholarship. And, <laughs> but uh, most of what um, Professor Kurth said, I, I have to agree with because it was um, an extremely exhilarating elaboration of thoughts that I had um, toyed with, especially thoughts about sacrifice and about the many different successive waves of, uh, of secularization. Uh, and of course he does pose this somewhat alarming thought which I often have and was veering away from in my talk, which is that, um, that there is a, an ineradicable need in us for sacrifice and that this need can be overcome only by the supreme sacrifice and our own identification with that supreme sacrifice. This is uh, René Girard's view of, of the Christian religion and it's one that um, I suppose I share but uh, it does have the consequence as he rightly says that if, uh, if we've as it were left all that behind us, left behind <coughs> us this hope for the supreme sacrificial victim who will take on himself the burden of all our sins, then the need for sacrifice roams uncontrolled through our social world. And that, of course, is what we saw in the 20th century, most notably in, in the Soviet experiment. Right, I just went back to all the questions from the floor. Um, the first gentleman said, how do we return from where we are to, to whether we're... Uh, people of faith or whether we are purely secular in our thinking, how do you return to the kind of depth of questioning that we in our current situation need? I think that's really what uh, you were saying, isn't it? And uh, I agree with you that there is um, a need to do this. There's a need to, to ask the kind of questions that don't seem to be part of our public discourse. 
But here we are in this room asking them, uh, and this is uh, surely uh, um, some kind of reason for hope, not for what uh, Schopenhauer would call unscrupulous optimism, but nevertheless for the thought that we can still, despite television and, all, and pop culture and all the rest, put all that aside uh, uh, and ask these questions. Uh, and um, the, the lady in front uh, said that, that implied that rather too much had been said in our papers about our fear of the present situation and where it has landed us and not enough trust in the ability of human love to overcome this fear. My correspondents have endorsed that in characteristic American fashion, so I will not do so. Um, <laughs> I think there's too much of this love around. Um, and... <laughs> Most of it is stay a, longer for the visit in America. <laughs> right. <laughs> Most of it is a is a sentimental trap. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 these are words that are offered uh, by people who don't sincerely endorse them. And I think uh, respect is a jolly good substitute. It's something that we can all live up to. Uh, that is what Kant meant by the love that is commanded. Uh, you know, when when Christ said to us that we must love our neighbours ourselves, I fully endorse that. Well, it's an Old Testament saying. Too. Um, but I think that what we mean by love there must not be confused with that other thing on which we can sometimes build our lives. Uh, and that it were, one of the real mistakes of Romanticism was to eroticize the hu human society entirely by making that kind of personal love into the foundation. Um, somebody on the left here asked whether what I'd say in response to, the, to um, Professor Gregory's image of the prodigal son. What kind of return can, can, I, can, can I envisage from the waves of secularization that I was talking about? Is my constitutional compassion, as he called it, really um, a solution, a third wave, so to speak? Uh, and that connects to what Professor Sigmund said. He said, ask, is there a, do I have a program for re-sacralization? And if so, what is it? Would I use the instruments of the law in order to um, outlaw pornography or out, he actually said outlaw gay marriage same sex marriage and so on well I don't have a program for resacralization but I would say this that, um, that, that somebody like me would not propose using the law to resacralize but he would oppose using the law to desacralize mm -hmm. uh, and that surely is how we should understand same sex marriage a marriage is a sacrament um, of course, it's a sacrament that we've tried to perpetuate through secular institutions by giving marriage a particular place in the civil law to correspond to its place in our old, old religious feelings. Um, that place in the civil law, I think, is an endorsement of the sacrament. There's no way in which um, same-sex marriage can enjoy that sacramental quality of the um, Christian marriage, certainly. You can, certain, you can produce legal safeguards so that, so that uh, people of the same sex can live together and guarantee their property, but that's not the same as creating a sacrament through the law. Uh, so I, th I think also about pornography that one shouldn't... The, the, I mean, this is a peculiar American problem that somehow Supreme Court judges have managed to class as free speech something which consists entirely of animal grunts. You know, um, I, do, I do feel that it, 
And it isn't necessary, actually, to interpret the First Amendment to permit things like that. Um, it has been so interpreted, and a huge industry is now built upon it, an industry so huge that if you stopped it, the American economy would collapse. <laughs> but it doesn't lead me to think that that was a correct use of the law. So I would say, go back to what I said at the end of my lecture. Be tender with the victims. Be gentle with the victims of, of secularization and recognize that the law that we have, that we've inherited, has many of its great and good qualities precisely because of that tenderness. It was there as a way of keeping in place a society which people have built through religious sacrifice, and you should never forget that. Professor Sigmund's neighbor uh, asked me about music. I, I, um, I agree with him that... Uh, there has been a revival of the religious uh, sense through music, particularly uh, Avo Pert and Goretzky. Um, and he reminds me that John Tavener and, uh, and Macmillan are, um, are uh, well, British. Um, and this is music inspired by faith. I, I would say that not all this, this music is of equal quality. Um, Tavener, to my mind, is a relentless repetition of liturgical, brilliant liturgical phases which don't actually have any musical structure. Uh, and I don't really go for Macmillan at all. Uh, but it, that doesn't, you know, these are aesthetic judgments. But is there such a thing in the United States? Actually, there is musically such a thing as this uh, repetition of tonal blocks. Um, and that is, of course, John Adams, and, um, uh, who is a, a, a relentlessly secular, although he has, I suppose, in El Nino, has come around to something like an attempt to, uh, to re-sacralize his music. Um, I, ha I find that there is, a, that, you know, there is something in music which, which deserves our respect in, in serious music, an attempt to certainly to re-consecrate the art, and I uh, endorse that. But I, I don't think we ever lost it in music. I think the most interesting example was that of Benjamin Britten, who, although he was like me, an Anglican, who, an unbelieving Anglican, who recognized that you should go along with all this and you could re-sacralize your community and its history through music, um, provided you maintained the contours of this most peculiar form of Christian church. All right, um, Mr. Jensen said that, uh, I, that should I not take on board the idea that modernity is really the inventor of religion as a general, as a universal idea, and that this is really what Eric Gregory was saying, that, the, that there is a peculiarly modern and indeed an enlightenment idea, that there is this thing called religion of which the various religions are subspecies, and that really I'm talking about religion in that sense. So I'm a very modern thinker, and, and I think I agree with that. I'm looking on religion from a point of view outside it, precisely in order to understand what it does to those who are inside it, and what, what is done to them by, by the public um, desacralization of the religious way of life. Um, finally, on fundamentalism, as embracing violence, not just Islamic, but all the various kind of, kinds of fundamentalism and capital punishment. I think, um, you know, the Christian view about punishment, as I understand it, is that punishment is a retribution for a wrong. Uh, it's, not to do, it's not a form of therapy. It's not an attempt to, uh, to rebuild society 
uh, uh, from uh, in the wake of a crime. It's an attempt to, uh, to administer justice. I don't agree with my neighbours that capital punishment should not, in principle, be a part of it. I think there are some crimes for which capital punishment is the only just response. I also think that it must be rarely, rarely used. It's never used in Europe, of course. Uh, but one of the consequences is that people never feel satisfied in Europe that um, murders are justly uh, put behind them, that, the, that just punishment has been administered. Murders go on uh, fermenting beneath the flesh of the, uh, of the families of their victims and uh, ultimately destroy them. So I'm totally in favor of capital punishment and totally in favor of its very infrequent use. Um, and I don't think of this as kind of violence of the sort that um, we associate with Islamism, for instance, or with certain kinds of, uh, of other religious fundamentalism. Thank you. I thank all our speakers. I understand that the conference resumes at 2 o'clock, and I want to thank all uh, the people who have attended this conference for your devotion and your resistance to the appeals of lunch. Thank you. Uh, let me take a moment uh, just to thank my colleague Maurizio Veroli. Uh, I know that others of my colleagues, perhaps Professor Sigmund, Professor Stout, uh, uh, thought that it was reckless of me to entrust this opening panel to a notorious Machiavellian. Uh, <laughs> But he has conducted himself with the greatest uh, decorum. I know there's some double bluff in here somewhere, but it was terrific, and I'm grateful to him. And, of course, I'm very grateful uh, to Professor Scruton for his wonderful paper and Professors Kurth and Gregory for their replies. We will assemble, as Professor Veroli said, uh, at uh, 2 o'clock, and we'll uh, be he hearing a paper from one of our nation's most distinguished, one of the world's most distinguished philosophers of religion, Professor Alvin Plantiga, uh, with responses from Professor Armin Nikolai, of Harvard and Professor Alistair McGrath of Oxford. So I'll see you at 2 o'clock. Excellent. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Both of you, your responses are really.